Hello, I'm Mark Sweeney, back with another episode of ITG's ABCs, a podcast feature on which I recap and comment on an anthology or backup comic story. This time out, I'll be taking a look at DC Comics superheroine The Huntress and a few chapters of her serial that ran through the back pages of Wonder Woman in the early 1980s. The Huntress was created with input from writer Paul Levitz and artist Joe Staten, and she debuted in the pages of, simultaneously, DC Superstars number 17 and All-Star Comics number 69, both cover dated December 1977. The Huntress was part of a stable of characters residing on the alternate dimensional world known as Earth-2, where the Golden Age greats from DC's past, including older versions of Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, and the rest of their comrades in the Justice Society of America, where they still shared adventures. On Earth-2, around the time their respective careers were winding down, Batman and old adversary the Catwoman fell in love, married, and had a daughter, Helena Wayne, who, in typical Batman family style, would grow and eventually be driven to avenge a dead parent in mask, cape, and utility belt. In this case, the dead parent was a blackmailed Selina Kyle Wayne, who'd been drawn briefly back into a life of crime. After the later death of Batman, Helena, in a costume kind of reminiscent of both parents, would take her father's old place in the JSA, and later also briefly joined Infinity Incorporated along with old pal Power Girl. Now in between stints with the JSA and Infinity Inc., the Huntress enjoyed a surprisingly healthy run as the backup feature in the pages of Wonder Woman. And I don't mean surprisingly in any negative way, I've always thought the Huntress was a really cool character in at least two incarnations. It was just very unusual for a backup feature in the waning days of the Bronze Age to last for almost 50 issues. So while she wasn't deemed worthy of her own solo series at the time, despite rabid call for it in Wonder Woman's letters column, the Huntress was holding up her end of the comic for a solid four years. Paul Levitz and Joe Staten got the series off to a strong start, and their Helena Wayne, lawyer by day, vigilante by night, was a vibrant and integral part of Earth 2 lore. Levitz and Staten began developing a strong supporting cast for Huntress, but familiar Earth 2 faces like Power Girl and villains like the Joker, Solomon Grundy, and the Thinker would drop by to cause trouble in Gotham during the first couple years of the series. And these stories are collected with a few other early Helena appearances in a trade paperback called Huntress, Dark Knight Daughter, which I took for granted as being readily available, but I guess that's just not the case. Hmm. About halfway through Huntress's run of backups, writer Joey Cavalieri took over, and I think really made the feature his own. While the setting was still an alternate Earth, Gotham City, The Earth 2 stuff was toned down a bit, not quite as in-your-face, and Cavalieri just went about telling stories of a tough-as-nails vigilante kicking ass on the gritty streets of Gotham. Joe Staten stuck around for the first few of Cavalieri's seven-page adventures, but Cavalieri's strong scripts had to endure a bit of art team upheaval after that with the likes of Don Heck 
the mismatched team of Mike DiCarlo on pencils, odd, and Tony DiZuniga on inks, and a young Michael Bear with various inkers, bridging the gap between Joe Staten and the settling presence of pencilers Tim Burgard and Mark Beecham, which finished out the series. There's a great little five-parter nestled in the middle of Joey Cavalieri's run, illustrated by Tim Burgard, a couple different inkers, and a guest chapter drawn by one of my absolute favorite artists, Dan Spiegel, that I'd like to recap and comment on for you. So I will take care of that next. The Huntress, Huntress, Huntress. <laughs> I'd like to examine your quiver. Uh-uh-uh. Unless you're good at removing arrows. I think your quiver's perfect, just the baby. Okay, the five-parter I have in mind here begins in Wonder Woman, number 309, cover dated November 1983. Now, what do you need to know before diving in? In recent chapters of the serial, bitter local on-air news personality Nedra Barover. It's funny, for someone who works in a library, I have a really hard time pronouncing the word borrower. Nedra Barrower has been drumming up support for an anti-vigilante campaign due to her personal distaste for the Huntress. In the cliffhanger to the just previous chapter, Helena stumbled upon what she thought was a common drug deal, but it turned out to be something a little more sinister. This chapter of The Huntress is called Black Market. It was written by Joey Cavalieri. Illustrated by the team of Tim Burgard on pencils and Rodan Rodriguez on inks. Lettered by Dana Andrews, colored by Nancy Houlihan, and edited by Alan Gold. We open up in a Gotham City sewer with a rather nervous-looking man, darting eyes, flashlight in hand, calling out for someone named Herbie. Well, Herbie responds, sneaking up on our nervous gentleman and the sound of Herbie's voice startles the guy, and he drops his flashlight into the icky sewage. Herbie asks the guy to call him by the name everyone else does, and that's the Earthworm. And this Earthworm guy is something to behold. Unnaturally tall, and rail-thin, bald, pointed head, yellow skin, long, sharp fingernails, a style of dress that I'd call Bob Cratchit-esque dark shabby suit, long tattered scarf, the rat on his shoulder really finishes off the earthworm's look. Nice, nice touch. It's really a testament to Burgard and Rodriguez's illustration, just how creepy this guy looks. And I'll say here that I kind of owe Burgard and the earthworm a little bit for my love of the Huntress, as it was in the earthworm's Who's Who entry in the first issue of that exhaustively researched series of DC profile pages that I picked up. And it's here that I first saw the Huntress fending off vermin in the background of Earthworm's profile. Well, the nervous guy is here in the sewer to report back to the Earthworm that the deal didn't go off as expected. They ran into a problem with the Huntress. And he's got neither the money nor the merchandise. This doesn't please the earthworm, and in the background we see dozens of rats gather on the scene. The earthworm rather calmly explains his disappointment, lamenting he'll have to obtain more of this mysterious merchandise, 
as the rats leap off sewer pipes and attack the messenger, burying him under a mound of disgusting vermin. Ugh. Meanwhile, we get our first look at the Huntress, who is above ground at that very moment, busting up the Earthworm's deal, kicking the crap out of a bunch of hoods while holding on to the goods. And the goods, in this case, is a baby. It's a black market child trade that the Earthworm's a part of and that the Huntress now finds herself in the midst of. Over a pile of unconscious hoods, the Huntress seems at a stalemate with one-armed Stooge, who doesn't quite buy the Huntress's threat that she'd use the infant as a human shield. But Helena uses a bit of sleight of hand and feigns handing over the child as she whips out and flicks an unseen batarang, which boomerangs back and disarms the creep. She threatens him with more violence to get some information about this despicable business, but all he can offer is that there's some guy living in the sewers, the earthworm, who handles the procurement of the children. Now, this guy and his gang only handle the final transaction, the handoff. Well, the Huntress doesn't exactly have a ton to go on, but as she swings away in the final panel of the chapter, she vows to find this earthworm and cut the black market off at the source. The story picked up the following month in Wonder Woman number 310, creative team for this chapter called Avenue XX. Remains the same with one exception, Ben Oda takes over the lettering. There's an interesting first page to this story. Four panels of point-of-view shots. An observer walks the titular Avenue XX in a skid row-type neighborhood of Gotham, and with each successive panel comes nearer and nearer a man smoking, leaning up against a brick wall. The smoker asks us, the observer, for the time, but quickly pulls a knife on us. But when we flip to the next page, we see... It was the earthworm whose perspective we had briefly taken. And brief is long enough. The knife man realizes his mistake immediately. He's apparently the earthworm scout, and he's ready to lead the villain to the next child to be traded. The baby belongs to a couple of junkies so desperate for their next fix that they hand their infant right over to the earthworm, and he literally waves two bunches of cash under their noses. The mother does show some remorse, but the couple walks away with their money while the earthworm justifies his business to his knife-wielding scout, Eddie. When Eddie asks why not just sell drugs for cash, the earthworm poo-poos that idea, calling drug dealing mere exploitation. With a very warped sense of reality, the Earthworm considers himself in the business of making childless couples happy. Meanwhile, the Huntress decides to check in with love interest and Gotham District Attorney Harry Sims, with whom Helena had left the child she rescued in the last issue. She drops by his office for news of the baby's health at the exact moment as a pediatric intern with the child in his arms, whom Harry had called upon to perform the checkup. Funny how a seven-page story can accommodate such coincidence. The intern explains that though the child is suffering from heroin withdrawal and a loss of hearing in one ear, she's on the road to recovery. 
And all this is being said as Helena holds the child in her arms. But when Harry catches her playing Goo Goo Gaga, she quickly hands off the baby and changes the subject. With the highest concentration of addicts residing on or around Avenue XX, Huntress decides to begin her investigation of the baby trade ring there. And with that, maybe slightly embarrassed for showing a little vulnerability, she drops out of Harry's window. Nearby, journalist Nidra Barrower, who has a serious mat on for the Huntress, is conducting a kind of pre-interview with Terry Marsh, a local politician and sympathetic ear who has begun his own campaign to ban vigilantes from Gotham. Marsh claims his campaign is gaining support and proceeds to go on an anti-hero tirade that would make G. Gordon Godfrey sit up and take notice before asking Nidra out on a date. Meanwhile, arriving on the scene at Avenue XX, the Huntress thinks back to the tip she received from the thug she beat up in the previous issue, something about an earthworm living in the sewer... She just manages to see someone ducking into a manhole, and with nothing more to go on than that, decides to follow the person down. No sooner does she make her way underground and activate her bat light than an animal growl makes her whirl around, and the Huntress is confronted with a living, breathing urban legend. Three of them, actually. A trio of alligators swim toward her, and one of them snaps up her cape in its jaws. Now that's a cliffhanger. With chapter 3 in Wonder Woman number 311, called Crocodile Tears, there are a couple more changes to the credits box. Mike DiCarlo inks these seven pages, and John Can't Stand Ya Costanza letters them. So where'd we leave off? Oh yeah, Huntress, Three Alligators. Uh, she tries everything. Mind you, one of them has her cape in its mouth. She kicks him. She tries a stun gun from her utility belt. But one of the gators knocks that away with its tail. A karate chop to the chin loosens her cape from the gator's jaws, and when another lunges at her, she does the old bone-in-the-rancor's mouth trick with a batarang. She manages to heft it up with her legs, flips it onto the others, and that must scare them just enough because they slither away. This whole scene is being observed by the man the Huntress followed into the sewer. Turns out it was not the earthworm, but his knife-wielding stooge, Eddie, who marvels aloud that he can't believe she got past his gators. Helena nails him to the wall with a couple of knives and pursues this. Whose gators? She roughs him up a little bit. The guy spills his guts. They're Herbie's gators, but most people call him the earthworm. He'd be happy to tell the earthworm that the huntress called and that she'll be back for him. We then cut to the televised interview between Nidra Borrower and Terry Marsh, on which she announces an anti-vigilante rally the following day at City Hall. This interview is being watched by Nidra and Marsh themselves, looking awful cozy, embracing in their pajamas on his couch. They're interrupted by the doorbell, and when Marsh goes to answer it, he finds a baby on his doorstep with a note attached. We only hear him read part of it 
which begins, Please take care of my... And looking on, we see head and shoulders sticking out of a manhole, chuckling as that creepy cur, the earthworm, hinting at some connection between these two. Uh, before we move on, I just want to comment on a letter in the Wonder Woman letter column. This issue is written by a woman named Diana Prince, and she swears that that's her real name. That's all. Okay, next up, the concluding two chapters of this Huntress thriller. Combining beauty, wisdom, and physical prowess, the Huntress fights a constant battle against crime and injustice. The Voice of the People, in the following chapters, written by Cavalieri, drawn by one of my absolute favorites, Dan Spiegel, who was at the time also illustrating Black Hawk, which is where I first happened upon Spiegel's work. And Spiegel's work, I think I've described before as being somewhere between Alex Toth and Joe Staten on the spectrum of comics artists. The letterer this time out is Carrie McCarthy. And once again, we're colored by Nancy Houlihan and Alan Gold, editor. Well, it's the day of the anti-vigilante rally. And it's a mean-looking crowd with their signs on sticks that shows up at City Hall hoping to force the mayor into banning the Huntress from the city. Nidra Borrower is reporting live at the event she helped incite. And Terry Marsh, who is momentarily set to address this crowd watches from a TV, most likely in his office, nearby. Marsh's TV viewing is interrupted by, surprise, the earthworm. Marsh confronts Herbie about his little leaving a baby at his doorstep stunt the previous evening. If someone had noticed, he claims, it could have ended his political career. But earthworm's not having any of this. He calls the stunt a lesson about being in the public eye. Marsh's jobs in this little enterprise are one, to get rid of the huntress, and two, to line up the wealthy childless clients willing to shell out for crack babies. But Earthworm expects him to do it with some subtlety and without bringing undue attention to their operation. Earthworm is not pleased when Marsh tells him that he had to, at Nidra Borrower's insistence, turn that baby over to the police. Another tiny cash calf gone. Earthworm asks his stooge, Eddie, to work over Marsh, but that's something we don't see because we're back at the rally where it's pointed out to Nidra that the Huntress is watching things unfold from high atop a building. Nidra calls out with a megaphone challenging Helena to come down, face the people. But Huntress declines, silently thinking to herself how important it is to her image that she remain aloof, striking fear in the hearts of the lawless. Well, she's got the common folk fearing her now, too. Many in the crowd yell up and shake their fist, but a few bold club and glass bottle-wielding demonstrators actually climb up a fire escape to confront Helena directly. Thinking better of using a gas bomb, which might cause some to lose their balance and fall, Huntress simply leaps to another rooftop, but unfortunately, she picked the wrong one. There's a crowd already waiting there, and Helena finds herself in the hands of the angry mob. In the last chapter to be covered here, called The Worm Turns, there's another artistic switch. This time Gary Martin is inking Tim Burgard's pencils. 
And this is a really good pairing. Burgard's pencils are rendered boldly. Uh, they're well-defined, and the inks lend an almost cartoony or animated style to the artwork, and it just... it works for this story full of colorful characters. The lettering credit has changed as well. Albert de Guzman is filling in those word bubbles in this chapter. The action opens with the Huntress seemingly at the mercy of a rooftop anti-vigilante mob. Helena decides to take the high road. Well, I guess maybe that's the low road because she leaps from the building top and bat-lines her way to the ground. When a crowd of demonstrators meets her at her landing spot, she uses a batarang to chop the valve off a nearby water pipe, and the crowd gets a high-pressure shower. And what's a huntress to do next? She thinks to check in with Terry Marsh, who she's aware of being at the center of this anti-huntress sentiment. And when she sneaks into his office, she finds not only a battered and bruised Marsh, but the jacket of Eddie, the earthworm stooge, complete with knife holes from Eddie's confrontation with Helena herself. Huntress presses Marsh on the connection between himself and the earthworm, but when he plays dumb, Helena reminds him of the story of Pinocchio. His nose grew when he told a lie, and... Marsh's broken nose might grow a little bit now, too. We'll assume Marsh opens up off-panel as we check in with Eddie and the Earthworm. And there's a title, but for what? I am not sure. They're in the sewer, surrounded by Earthworm's rat friends, contemplating Terry Marsh's role in their organization going forward. Eddie with a another baby in his arms. When they turn a corner, however, they're startled by the presence of the Huntress. Earthworm uses his strange control of the rats and sends them diving after Helena. She pulls up her cape to fend off this wave of vermin. And it's this panel that was adapted into the background illustration of the Earthworm's Who's Who entry, the first action I'd ever see the Huntress take. Helena simultaneously whips out a gas gun, which dispels the rodents. Next, she trips up Eddie, taking the baby off his hands, but when she turns her attention to the earthworm, she finds the laughing creep just on the other side of a grate blocking entry into another sewer line. The bars of the grate are possibly close, didn't seem like any human could slip through, but the slimy, slithery earthworm somehow did it. And he taunts Helena. There's no way she can follow she screams a vow to crush him, but the earthworm saunters away and enjoys literally the last laugh, gloating to Helena that perhaps someday she'll have the chance, but for now, adieu. And the huntress is left almost alone, forced to be satisfied with rescuing the child in her arms, and at least for the time being, breaking up the black market ring. So this is the sort of thing you'd find in the Huntress backup series, uh great little story, great challenge for the Huntress's crime-fighting talents. Even though she doesn't quite get the bad guy, I think we see her at her best. Or at least we see the qualities that make the Huntress the Huntress. A keen deductive mind, a proclivity for great violence. We get the introduction of one of Helena's more distinguished enemies. Uh, I've mentioned the Earthworm's Who's Who page. With the Rose Gallery, the Huntress developed on her own creeps like the Boa, 
Doctors Tar and Feather and The Undertaker. Uh, the Earthworm's the only one to rate his own Who's Who entry. With his strange mastery over sewer critters and ability to evade capture, I'm actually surprised he didn't turn up more often than he did. In fact, this was his only featured story until DC <clears throat> dug him up a decade or so later for Underworld Unleashed, where he vexed Guy Gardner's crew. And the Huntress, well, she would enjoy about another year of backups in Wonder Woman before Earth 2 was streamlined out of existence, and the Huntress with it. In DC's 50th anniversary celebrating slash house-cleaning maxi-series Crisis on Infinite Earths. And for all the good the Crisis may have done, characters like the Huntress uh, really got short shrift. She's such a great character, so much potential, and that potential was lost, at least for a couple of years. As I said earlier, I think Joey Cavalieri really made this feature his own after Paul Levitt's left. Sure, his stories were still happening technically on Earth 2, uh, but those references seemed more subtle and subdued, and Cavalieri's stories of a vigilante kicking ass in the underworld of Gotham were a great tryout, and this type of story would translate well when he revived the character later in the decade with Joe Staten. A Huntress, stripped of her waneness and Earth 2 baggage, would finally debut in her own series in 1989. And the character would go on to be featured in titles like The Justice League, Birds of Prey. She'd be seen in various television, live action, and animated series. Uh, but not before being completely integrated into the Batman family of characters. But Helena Bertinelli, as the Huntress would be known as from 1989 on, is an altogether different character and really is way out of the scope of this podcast episode. Well, the story's at hand. As I said before, not much from Huntress's run as backup star has been reprinted or collected. There's that one out-of-print trade with the early Levitt stories. Uh, but none of the Cavalieri stuff has seen the light of day in 30 years. Those issues of Wonder Woman are available digitally. But isn't it much more fun to track down the single physical issues? I'm going to go ahead and recommend that. It was a minor shame that Helena couldn't hold on to a consistent art team after Joe Staten left the Wonder Woman backup, but there were just as many ups as downs, and even with two pencilers and four inkers represented in the 35 pages covered here, there's a lot of good-looking work, some of which I'll reproduce on the show's accompanying blog, itgblogcast.blogspot.com. Before I go, I want to send some special Gotham greetings to those who liked and shared my Twitter post pushing my 4th of July Tomahawk episode. Those cool kids include AceFan71, Charlton Hero, Chris from Bat Books for Beginners, The Comic Space, Dinkster Donatelli, Doc Strange, that's at Billy D. Licious, Dr. Ange of the Supergirl Comic Box Commentary, Jim, at Canada Daredevil, Joe Crawford, Johnny E. Awesome, Kirk Spencer, Long Box of Darkness, Lauren Skinkis Art, Lost in Time 74, Outlaw Club, Paul Hicks of Waiting for Doom, 
Professor Frenzy of Bat Books for Beginners and the aptly named Professor Frenzy Show, and Ross Michaud. Big thank you to those folk, and thanks to you for downloading, streaming, etc. I really appreciate your listening. All right, I think it's time to edit this, edit this, edit this baby. So until next time, eight pages per is just too much story. Take care. <laughs>